everybody, welcome. I'm glad that you can join us tonight for our midweek Bible study here at New Beginnings. I want to talk tonight about a topic that I think is very close to all of our hearts. Obviously, every one of us want to be loved. Every one of us want to be shown love. And to me, the greatest and most intimate measure of love is when someone does something very personal and very, um, I don't want to use the word intimate in the wrong sense, but say when someone knows that you like a specific thing and they go out of their way to make it very personal, to make you feel really special, it may, not, it may be something that doesn't mean anything else to anybody else. It might not matter to anyone else. But there's that specific thing that when it's done for you uh, might be a method of affirmation or approval, an expression of esteem. Uh, it could be a, a material thing, a specific gift, a certain type of food. When someone does something like that and shows that they've gone out of their way to do something, to get something, to express to you, something that they know is going to mean something special to you. To me, that is a form of love that kind of is set apart from everything else. That's the kind of love I want to talk about tonight. I'm going to go to a portion of scripture, and you might be thinking, okay, where are you going with this? Because you're talking about love, yet here, uh, this is a pretty heavy-duty subject. I want to bring you to the Last Supper. I'm going to go to Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31. Jesus is addressing Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. Jesus continuing, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you, even to die with you. Little did he know what was coming in just a few hours. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Sure enough, the Gospels tell us that in the early hours of the next day, while Jesus was brought before the highest court in Israel, Peter denied even ever meeting Jesus. He actually curses the person with foul language who pointed him out as one of Jesus' disciples. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 75, it says this, Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he, Peter, went away weeping bitterly. Exactly what Jesus said Peter was going to do, he did. We know he didn't plan to it. We know he, he, it wasn't something that Peter had uh, planned to betray Jesus. It wasn't something that he would have even thought he was possible of doing. We see that from the response when Jesus first said to him, Satan is coming to try to sift you, Peter. He's wanting to take you out. Peter was so confident in himself. He thought, there's no way. There's no way. I'll lay my life down for you. Little did he know that he'd find himself in that position in just a few more hours. Now, Peter comes face to face with his own cross, the cross of failure. But we see that Jesus is willing to give him another chance. Mark chapter 16, verse 5, resurrection morning. And entering the tomb, 
they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. Now, this angel is speaking to the women that came to the tomb. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Verse 7, listen to this. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he, Jesus, is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. This is just a couple of days after Peter completely denied him, swore that he never met him, betraying Jesus, literally throwing him under the bus. And yet, Jesus instructs an angel to tell the women, tell my disciples and Peter, tell them I'm not here, tell them I've risen. He specifically mentions Peter by name. Can you possibly imagine what that did to Peter? Can you possibly imagine how loved Peter must have felt knowing that with all Jesus had just endured, going to the cross, on that cross, brutalized by the, tormented by the Romans, suffering that death of humiliation on the cross, buried in a tomb, having to suffer in, in, in the throes of hell, raising from the dead, and who's on Jesus' mind, Peter. And tell Peter also. I'll guarantee you that at Peter's last breath, he remembered that moment, that message from the angel. Can you put yourself in Peter's place? You're thinking, man, I have really blown it this time. How is God ever going to forgive me for this? How do I move on from here? The devil is all over him. He's crushing Peter's soul with guilt and condemnation. And then Jesus arranges for this, this blast of love to hit Peter and knock out all the guilt and shame from his life. It is these little things that God does, these little love you moments that God brings into our lives that mean so much to us and make our relationship with him so personal. I'm convinced that Peter would have never been able to preach that message on the day of Pentecost, that, that brief 10, 15-minute message where thousands of people responded, coming to Christ, placing their faith in him as Messiah. I don't see how it would have ever been possible for Peter to be able to, to, to rally himself, to have the confidence, to have the boldness, to have the courage to stand up and preach a message like that if it had not been for that just shot in the arm from Jesus. I know you betrayed me. I know you did me wrong, but I love you. I care for you. And I still believe for you, believe in you. You know, just a few days ago, I was reading my Bible, my personal Bible, which most of the time I keep at home. And I noticed in the Bible cover, this little note kind of peeking out from the sleeve where my Bible is tucked in. I pulled it out and I saw the date was from 2011. And all of a sudden, all the memories came back of a Sunday morning service. And then that Sunday morning service, I remember, it was a season of life that I was in this deep funk. You want to call it depression, oppression, whatever it was. I just was not feeling myself. 
just everything felt out of sorts. It just seemed during that time that everything was flat in the services. It didn't feel like we were making an impact on anybody's life. It felt like that 400-year period between the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. 400 years of silence, dryness. In between the first service and the second service, a visitor, a lady, I had never, never been to our church before, never met me before. On her way out, she slipped me that note. And all she said when she slipped it to me was, she put it in my hand and she said, she looked at my eyes, she said, Pastor, the Lord is pleased with you. I took the note into my office. I opened it up and it read, I am pleased with you. I am here. My presence is with you. Keep following the leading of my Holy Spirit. And as you continue to obey my voice, miracles and healings will take place as I manifest my presence in this place. Now that note may have not meant a lot to anyone else, but it was a game changer for me. After I wiped the tears away and washed my face, I marched into the next service, a different person. That note may have not even had that kind of impact at a different time of my life. But I needed to hear that on that particular weekend. And the thing, no one else knew what I was going through. I remember how personally loved I felt reading that note. To think that God would send a perfect stranger to deliver that message still amazes me to this day. It's exactly what Peter must have felt like. It's like the angel said, what? Jesus told the angel to, to mention my name and to make sure that I'm there also? There's nothing more touching than when you receive a personal love note like that from our Heavenly Father. It's in the little things that he expresses his love that means the most to us. I'm sure you that you're joining me right now, you're, you're, you're thinking of times where God just showed up on the scene and did something for you so special. It didn't mean anything to anyone else, but it meant something to you and showed you how deeply personally connected that he is to us. It, it makes me think about the wedding at Cana. You know the story, John chapter two. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus must have thought, I'm not the caterer. Verse four says, women, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother, knowing him and knowing his character, ignored that statement, turned to the servants and said to him, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. These are big stone jars. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some of, the, some of it out, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet, we would say today, the maitre d', tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Verse 11 says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? The, it says the disciples believed in him. 
probably 99% of the people at the wedding had no clue. All they knew was, wow, they brought the good wine out. They had no idea where it came from, but the disciples knew. And even more importantly, the groom knew. We assume that, that they believed in him because the disciples saw the water change into wine. I don't know. I want to look at it from a different angle. I think they placed a whole new level of faith and trust in Jesus when they saw this act of compassion, this act of love that he did behind the scenes. Why? See, in our culture, it might not make a big deal, but they were impressed by the love and the compassion that, the, that he had towards the groom who would have been completely embarrassed and would have been talked about for ages about the disaster that happened at so-and-so's wedding. You see, it was the groom's responsibility to provide for the wedding. It was the groom's responsibility to make sure that there was enough wine, that there's enough food, that the guests are enjoying themselves. And obviously, there had been some type of a miscalculation. Maybe there were a lot more guests that showed up than what he was expecting. But this man, the bridegroom, would have been completely, he would have been considered a disgrace to his family and a disgrace to the community. And Jesus provided the best wine for this man. It was a little thing for the guests, but it was monumental to the groom. And the disciples saw this. They watched from behind the scenes. Yeah, it was miraculous that he took the water and turned it into wine. But was, what was more impressive to them is that Jesus was concerned about the outcome of this man's wedding. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about an incident that took place in my life. In August of 1995, I found myself in front of about 5,000 people at a, a conference up in North Jersey, actually outside the Meadowlands. I was to receive my ministerial license, therefore declaring me to be a minister of the gospel. Now, that had been arranged to happen before I went to Bible school. It's a whole long story that I won't go into. But the Lord did something that night for me that I'll never forget. He did something very special, very personal to me. The other 5,000 people that were there, it might not have meant as much to them that night as it meant to me. What the Lord had done for me is he had prearranged for five ministers that I had been following since my early days of a, as a Christian, men that I, men that I held in high esteem, as great teachers of the word, men of passion, men who had really had a heart that was completely sold out to God. And therefore, on that platform, there was a gentleman named Mario Marullo, another Bible teacher, Charles Neiman, another noted Bible teacher, Bob Yandian, uh, Pastor Ray McCauley from South Africa, who was over Rama Bible Training Center of South Africa, who I had followed on TV for years. And my pastor, David T. DeMola, who's gone on to be with the Lord. I didn't realize the significance until after that night that every major individual that I considered worthy of following, worthy of allowing them to speak into my life, God prearranged that every single one of them would be on that platform that night. It wasn't a big deal to everybody else, but it was a very big deal to me. It was another one of those I love you moments, and I want to make this special for you. And literally to think that he brought these men from different parts of the world together that one night, I took it as a 
I love you. I love you. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says this. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. You see, when God does one of those things where he is so personal to you, you can't help but feel drawn to him. You can't help but feel like, wow, I really mean something to you. In Luke chapter 10, we're told about an incident that took place. Jesus was involved in. It was at the house of Lazarus. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, dear, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. You see, Martha could have had that same intimate experience, but Martha was more concerned and she had, she had a good heart. She, Martha's not an evil person. She's more concerned with lavishing Jesus with an awesome dinner, with a beautiful experience there, making sure all the details were set, making sure all the right china was used, making sure everything turned out right, making sure that all the food was prepared properly. But Jesus was not going to take this time away from Mary. I'm sure he was very grateful for Martha wanting to prepare this, this wonderful meal for him, not only for him, but for also his disciples, which, you know, if there was a group of people there, it's not an easy thing to cook for that many people in one shot, especially back then. But he wanted to teach her a lesson about intimacy and about the little things. Now, to Mary, it was a big deal for her to be able to sit at the feet of Jesus. Yes, yeah, she could have got up and helped her sister. But, you know, she probably helped her a million other times. But, you see, Jesus wanted her to learn a lesson. We place importance on accomplishments. He places importance on relationships. Love is expressed, expressed through relationships, not just through accomplishments. Mark chapter 3, verse 13 tells us, and he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. He called out. He went up this mountain. He prayed. And then he began to call out from the multitudes those that he wanted to really pour his life into. Verse 14 says, then he appointed 12 out of that multitude. He appointed 12 for this reason, that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach. But notice, notice the order here. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. So that he could be very closely, intimately involved in their lives. In order for him to prepare them to go and preach. And to have power to heal sicknesses and cast out demons. But the important thing for Jesus was that they would be with him. He was more concerned for the little things. Come and spend time with me. They wanted to learn how to preach. They wanted to cast out demons like they saw him do. They wanted to raise the dead, heal the sick like they saw him do. He said to them, you got it backwards. Spend time with me first, and then you'll be able to do these things. 
I remember on many, many occasions, many occasions throughout the years of waking up in the middle of the night and just coming downstairs or getting away from everyone else that's sleeping so I don't disturb anybody and just hanging out on the couch maybe or I don't know, a chair in the kitchen and just say, Lord, I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to ask you for anything. Just, just want to spend time with you. If there's anything you need me to, to know, I'm open. My heart's open to you. If there's anything you need me to pray, I'll pray. But right now, I just want to hang out with you. I just, just, just want to spend time with you. I believe in all my heart that I'm personally being able to experience the things I'm experiencing now because of those times of just saying, hey, let's just hang out together. It's in the little things that he expresses the love, his love to us. I want to get back to Peter's story. Because this one here, if you're not careful, you'll miss that little I love you thing. John chapter 20 talks about Resurrection Sunday. It's one of the gospel accounts about Jesus' resurrection. Now, when the women came back and told the disciples, we've seen the Lord. He's risen. He's alive, just like he said he was. He would. He would. Verse 3 of John chapter 20 says, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, who's John, they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter. I think that's John's way of saying that he was younger and Peter's an older guy. And he came to the tomb first. He, John, stooped down and looked in and saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. He had enough respect to wait for Peter to get there. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he, Simon Peter now, saw the linen cloths lying there, verse 7, and the handkerchief which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Most of mankind, most of the church for the past 2,000 years has missed this little intimate I love you moment. But the disciples knew exactly what it meant. In their culture, when a person came to your house and spent time with you and had dinner with you, had a meal with you, if they took their napkin and folded it and placed it next to their plate, that was a sign. I am pleased. I am grateful for how you've treated me. I love you, and I will be back. Can you imagine, again, what Peter must have felt like when he saw this symbol of Jesus' deep love and personal, just a sign of esteem over his relationship? I am pleased, and I will return. Many times we hold on to our failures way more than we hold on to the special intimate times with God. And the truth is, those moments when the love of God has touched our hearts are way more powerful than anything that the enemy can throw at us through guilt or condemnation, but you have to be looking for them. You see, because the pressure of guilt and the pressure of condemnation, the pressure of our failures weigh on us so much. They want to crush our souls. And sometimes if you're so caught up in the failures and so caught up in the guilt and the shame, you could be missing out on one of those I love you moments. I want to finish tonight with the Apostle Paul's revelation of the love of God. 
Saul of Tarsus, the man who watched as Stephen, the first martyr, was stoned to death in Jerusalem. He goes on to say in the latter years, I was there. I was holding the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen, saw the blood, heard the words of Stephen, his last words to Jesus. Don't count this against them. These words of forgiveness. Paul, who made a living persecuting the church, locking up men, women, and children, putting them in jail just for declaring the fact that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul, who referred to himself as the worst sinner of all, that same Paul completely transformed by the love shown him by the very person whose name he hated. Romans chapter 8, years later, that same Saul, Paul, now wrote to the church at Rome. Romans 8.33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37, Paul, impacted by the love of God, wrote this, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm so glad that you joined me tonight. I'm asking you, let him love you. Let him free you from guilt and shame. He wants to be your personal Lord, your personal Savior. And I'm not saying this to put Jesus in this position that he's just begging us like this this individual who, who just needs to have us there. He's God. He's Lord. He's the Almighty One. But he wants to live his life in you. He wants you to be free from guilt and shame. He hates what sin has done to us and wants to restore us to that place where we constantly are experiencing those I love you moments. Would you ask him to come into your life if you haven't done so already? Would you ask him to be your Lord, to be your Savior? I'll just lead us in a a very simple prayer. When I say simple, I don't mean it's not powerful. It's simple because God knows if he made it any more difficult, the majority of us would miss it. Just say this with me. Father, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross to pay for my sin. I believe that he's risen from the dead. And with all my heart, I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for making me a child of God. I pray from this moment forward, you'd be very much aware of those personal, little, special things that God does for you where he manifests and expresses his love, showing you, I love you. 
I want to be with you. I want you to be with me. I pray that you're very much aware of those moments from this, this point forward. I bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and hope you'll either come and see us in person this weekend or join us online. God bless you.